Welcome to Those Catholic Shrinks. I'm Lisa Sojourner, a Catholic therapist following the call of Jesus and my vocation in my profession. This is a podcast all about mind, body, and spirit. So settle into the couch and let's get started. Welcome everyone. This is Those Catholic Shrinks. It's a special episode. I clearly have two extra people on with me. I have my wonderful husband, Andy, who's been on before, and we have Christopher West joining us, which we are so, so excited. Um, But before we get started, Christopher, I was hoping that you might be able to start us with a prayer. Sure, sure. Let's pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this technology that allows for it. We ask you, please, to open our hearts to whatever you want to do, wherever you want to guide our conversation. We ask for blessings and surprise graces for all those listening to this podcast. Surprise us, Lord. Show, show us something that we don't know about who you are and who we are and your beautiful, awesome plan to prosper us. We give it all to you, Lord. We place it in the womb of our Blessed Mother where all good things are conceived and, and brought to birth. We ask it all in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Awesome. Well, I know when you and I were talking about possibly doing the podcast, one of the things we were talking about was Andy um, recently having been at your institute here in Orlando and just the beautiful graces that were coming from that and wanting to kind of invite Andy into the conversation as well, because he is the, um, well, he's the, I can't remember your exact title, I'm sorry. It's a long $5 (laughs) title. So I'm the Director of Family Life and Evangelization at St. James Cathedral here in Orlando. Yeah, and so a lot of the stuff that Andy was bringing back and telling me about, I was getting really excited about being a therapist, but then also seeing like the fruit that it was gonna start bearing in his work, and then the fruit that it was also bearing in our marriage. so we were talking about being really excited to bring Andy on as well. Um, so kind of wanting to like, was thinking of like doing it in two things, like kind of big picture, a couple of big picture questions for you, and sure. then maybe kind of like zooming down a little bit more. Um, so I think uh, one, of, one of the things that I was really excited to ask you about was comparing um, the way modern culture views the human person with how theology of the body does because I know in my, in my practice, I see how our culture fractures the individual, how it's constantly seeking to, to break people into individualized parts and then cancel parts of themselves out and try, I call it um, a reductive view of personality and personhood versus expansive. And that culture is looking to reduce us down And it seems nice at first because it's like, oh, who am I? What's the one thing that I am? Instead of understanding yourself as expanding and growing as a person over time. Yes. Um, But culture wants to reduce us because it makes us more controllable. So that's what I see in my practice. So I'm curious, um, like what your view is on that and how theology of the body speaks to that. Theology of the body speaks right into that. In fact, what theology of the body is, is in John Paul II's terminology it's an adequate anthropology Uh, and by that he means adequate if you pick that word apart means equal to it's a vision of the human being anthropology the study of man it's a vision of the human being that is equal to what a human being actually is it's a it's a total vision or an integral vision what you were calling this expansive vision lisa john paul ii would call this integral vision or total vision or adequate anthropology 
the fundamental question of anthropology uh, in the church's mind, really, uh, John Paul II unfolds this at, at great length, is the relationship of body and soul, right? We, we are not just physical, nor are we just spiritual. We are this strange marriage of the spiritual and the physical. And if you get that wrong, you're going to end either with angelism on the one hand or animalism on the other. Uh, angelism would be the idea that I'm a spirit trapped in my body, that my body is of no consequence whatsoever. All that matters is this angelistic understanding of, of my soul, my intellect, my will. Uh, and, and that is, it's death dealing. Both of these, whether it's angelism or animalism, it's death dealing. Why? Because the very definition of death is the rupture of body and soul. That's what death is. When we are trying to live a spiritual life divorced from our bodies, we're dead. Mm. Conversely, when we're trying to live merely as physical creatures divorced from our spiritual dignity, we're also dead, but on the other side of the coin, so to speak. Mm. Right? We live an animalistic life where, where it's just about the body. And I remember a song years ago I heard on the radio that said, we ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do it on the Discovery Channel. You know, that, that you reduce yourself to the level of the, the animal and you lose the dignity of the word person, right? Person is the word we use to distinguish us from the animals. Uh, persons have freedom. Persons have the capacity to love. And, and love, if Christianity teaches us anything, it teaches us that love is not merely something spiritual. Love is manifest in and through the body. The ultimate act of love that was ever expressed on planet Earth is right here. Mm -hmm. This is my body yep. given up for you. This is my body given up for you. We could, we could look at it this way. That if we are intent on divorcing ourselves from our bodies, we can make no sense of a God who is intent on wedding himself to the body. <laughs> We, we have this idea that religion is a flight from the body to reach God. Christianity is the exact opposite movement. It's God taking on a body to reach us. Yeah. Right. And, and the battle here, and you, you, you put your finger on it, Lisa. Uh, I, I would put it this way. The battle is between incarnation and excarnation. Hmm incarnation is word made flesh right saint john says how do we recognize the antichrist the antichrist is the one who promotes excarnation he denies incarnation he promotes the rupture why does he promote the rupture because the rupture is death and that's what he wants he wants our death what does jesus want he wants our life and life to the full and that means integration Yep. Of body and soul. So 
I could go on and on and on. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm sure you have some other questions. No, well, I love that because like so much, like I talk to my clients about like, what is love, you know? And one of the things that I often say when they ask that question, we could get into, and I think this is going to be our next question, right? About Eros and Agape and Philia. Like we talk about that a little bit and that's mind blowing for a lot of people. But then I also talk about one of my favorite definitions of love is to continually will the good of the other. You know, because I think people get confused. Do they think that love is either a feeling or it's something that you do when in reaction, in actuality, it's a combination of all of these things. It's a feeling that you have towards an individual that leads to action. Yes. It's your spirit recognizing the beauty in another person and then caring for and willing the good of that other person through your actions, because you'll often see people say like, well, this person loves me. It's like, yeah, but how are they acting in your life? What are they doing? Or somebody doing all these things that they care about somebody, but never telling them that they love them. It's kind of like they haven't found a way to integrate those two things. They split them and fracture them. Yes, uh, Lisa, you're, you're from a psychological perspective, you're, you're putting your finger on exactly what John Paul's putting his finger on from a theological perspective. Yep. And it's beautiful to see how these complement one another, the psychological and the theological. Um, we, we would, John Paul would put it this way, that the willing of the good of the other, when it is turned into action, it becomes incarnation mm -hmm. because the, the action takes place through the body, yep. right? The action becomes a living out of, of what you will, what you said, you, you recognize the good of the other in your spirit, which is true, but you manifest it in your body through your actions. Yep. There's the integrity of the spiritual and the physical, right? What's, what's happening at the cross is that Christ is willing the good of the whole world, even though it cost him the sacrifice of his very body and blood. Yep. Right? So at, at the sort, because we are so inclined to angelism here, to, a, to an excarnated view of the faith rather than an incarnated view, um, we, we have to emphasize this over and over and over again, that at the source and summit of everything we believe as Catholics is the body of Christ given up for us. Mm. That's, that's love in action, love in the body, incarnating love. John Paul II speaks of love becomes the sincere gift of yourself. And yourself is not an excarnated spirit. Yourself is an incarnated spirit. Mm -hmm. Yourself is the union of your body and your soul. Mm. And, and all of this can get a little theoretical. Um, but one of the reasons I was really hoping that Andy could be on our, our podcast today was just to shine a light as, as one who just immersed himself for a whole week in this vision that the, maybe Andy, you could share, you know, your wife and I are waxing eloquent about psychology <laughs> and theology here, sure. but what was, what was the impact for you, Andy, in having these truths presented to you in such a way that your heart could receive them? Sure. And I, I think about when you ask that question, I think about, I used to be a, a middle school teacher, right? And um, I remember t teaching one a lesson one time about heaven, right? And, and saying, you know, guys, like this is our destiny and stuff like that. And asking them, you know, what do you what do you think about when you think about heaven? And do you think if it's a good thing or do you think it's 
And they started giving me all these pious answers that, you know, you're supposed to give to the religion teacher. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want you to, to tell me when you think about heaven, what your actual reaction is to it. Right. And finally, this one kid, Angel, I'll never forget. He said, uh, he said, uh, honestly, it sounds kind of boring, Mr. Sojourner. Right. And Good I'm like, for him. I'm yeah, glad he said it. Thank you. And I'm like, why, why does that sound boring to you? He's like, I don't want to spend like, you know, a thousand years sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not into that. Right? Um, I'm like, okay, good. You, thank you for bringing that up because we're operating on a false sense of, of what we're destined for. Right. Yes. And I'm some, so I remember asking him, you know, Angel, what do you like? What are, what are you really into? He's like, I love playing basketball, man. I hope there's, there's basketball in heaven. I'm like, man, God gave you that ability to play basketball. Like, I think that, that that's not something that you're going to have to put aside right? So that you can go to heaven and just, you'll go to heaven because the alternative of hell is much worse, right? It's like, no, 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 that, that physical pleasure, that joy, that desire that you have in that, that is God kind of giving you almost a preview of what heaven is, right? And that that Mm. would be so much more, um, so much more filled. Um, So I think on a practical level, what, what I see play out in my work and in my own life too, right? is that this is an issue that this angelism and animalism thing is an issue, not just with, when we talk about in the culture, like people that have bought into our culture, but people that have, have bought into to trying to love the Lord and live in the church, right? That, yes. that we both fall into kind of opposite errors of this. Correct. Right? That, well um, said, yes. That, you know, the world might say, just do whatever you want with the flesh um, as, as an angelism thing, right? You are your will, you are your... Um, you are, you know, you're, you're just your spirit. And so your body is a tool for you to use. Um, and at the same time, people in church would be like, look, my job is to just put all of that to death, right? To, to take all of my desires and all of my even physical longings and just put it in a bag and control it um, yes. so that I can do, you know, be a good servant to God, right? Um, and so, yeah, the way that I kind of see see that playing out is like this are this body right these these hands this flesh that's right in front of me is good and that god gave this to me to be um to be holy to to have it redeemed right um so even the things of the world that we that we rightly enjoy right so i was thinking about you know my my, i don't know why this came up in the conversation but my favorite smells right i think you you said to talk about like what are Man, like I love the smell of a baseball glove and I love Woo! the smell of like, you know, freshly sawn wood and things like that. Like that, the reason I love those smells is because like that is part of God's good creation that will be redeemed, right? That's part like of it, that, brother. Right? What so. you're proclaiming is an incarnational or sacramental worldview. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and the 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 rotten fruit of the rupture is precisely that student who thinks heaven is boring. Right. right. That is the fruit of rupture between the spiritual and the physical. I don't want to just sit on a cloud and play a harp for eternity. And I, I can't think of a more um, of more proof that our catechesis has failed yes. than to have people in Catholic school who think heaven is boring. Right. That is proof that we have failed to reach them with the gospel. Your vision of heaven is boring. You have not heard the gospel. You've heard what I call you, and you heard me talk about this, Andy, in the the retreat. 
you, you've heard the, the starvation diet gospel. Yes. Your desires are bad. They're only going to get you in trouble. You need to repress all that, follow all these rules, and then you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. This is not our faith. And if, we, if people have the impression that it is our faith, then it's only a matter of time before they become converts to what I call the fast food gospel, which is the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for all of our desires. And, and we have to be honest here that that is much more attractive than the starvation diet gospel. If the only two choices are starve yourself or eat fast food, I'm going for the chicken nuggets because I'm hungry. Yep. But those chicken nuggets, if that becomes your steady diet, you're eventually going to get sick. And that's when you're ready to say, is there something other than the fast food? Yeah. Is there a banquet that corresponds to my hunger? That's the good news of the gospel. There is a banquet and it corresponds perfectly to that boy's desire for basketball, to your desire for that the smell of that baseball mitt and whatever it awakens in your heart, the smell of fresh wood. What you're smelling there, whether you realize it or not, you heard me say this in the course, that everything in the created world contains traces of the mystery of God, mm -hmm. right? What you are smelling, what, what awakens your heart in the smell of that baseball mitt is the presence of the Lord within his creation. Yeah. And that's called incarnation. The yeah. whole physical world was impacted when the word was made flesh. You are, and it sounds strange to say it because we just haven't heard it said, but yeah. in a very real way, you are smelling Jesus in that baseball mitt. Mm. You are smelling Christ in that freshly cut wood. Yeah. You, are, you are inhaling, you are taking in the mystery of a sacramental understanding of the world. That, that the physical is the vehicle and the channel, the means by which we encounter the spiritual. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's our faith. That's called, it's called Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that kind of, that you talking about that leads me to what my next kind of big picture question for you was, was um, I wanted you to talk a little bit about Eros. What is Eros? And then you had a beautiful image, I think, that your, your daughter drew um, that kind of showed the three things that we can do with our arrows. So, yes. um, and you talked about that a little bit already, but if you could kind of just comment on that. Yes, certainly. Um, eros is the Greek word that the church uses to speak about that, that ache of the human heart for something, right? We are defined by our yearning. Uh, the very first thing in part one, paragraph one of part one, uh, section one of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, like, okay, where's the catechism going to start? It's got to be important. It starts with desire. Mm -hmm. It starts with this ache we all feel for something. Turn on the radio and you're going to hear this cry of the heart. Um, in the words of the prophet Bruce Springsteen, <laughs> everybody's got a hungry heart right mm. that thing that hunger that yearning uh, again i grew up thinking it was bad uh, yeah. but i learned from john paul ii that it has a name it's called eros e-r-o-s and it's good <laughs> it's fundamentally good god gave us eros i like to say to be like the fuel of a rocket mm. 
that has the power to launch us to the stars. Mm. Uh, the problem is there's an enemy who doesn't want us to reach the stars. Mm. And his goal with original sin was to invert the rocket engines, mm. to turn them back on ourselves. And this is why we go out into the world looking for love and joy and happiness, but it so often backfires on us yep. because our rocket engines are pointed in the wrong direction. And what I learned from John Paul II, which changed my life, was Christ came into the world not to condemn those with inverted rocket engines. And that's all of us, right? We all have inverted rocket engines. Christ came into the world to redirect our rocket engines to the stars. Yeah. This is the image that I shared with the course about the, the three choices with arrows. Hmm. We, we will become either a stoic, which is repress, repress, repress. And that's the guy holding it all in, right? Mm -hmm. We'll become a stoic, an addict, or an aspiring mystic. Mm. We become an addict when we aim eros at finite pleasures. Mm. Because eros is a yearning for infinite joy. When we aim eros at finite pleasures, mm. they never satisfy. So we think we need more. We go and we get more. It still doesn't satisfy. So we think we need more. We go and we get more. It still doesn't satisfy. Yeah. That's not a life of happiness. That's a life of addiction. Mm -hmm. right? that's, that's not a psychological definition of addiction, but a theological definition of addiction. Yeah. Addiction happens when we aim our desire for God at anything less than God. Mm. The aspiring mystic is the one who opens that yearning for God to God. Mm. It's the one who aims that yearning for infinite joy at infinite joy. Mm. And that's what a life of prayer is. Yeah. Prayer, the fathers of the church tell us, is nothing but becoming a longing for God. Mm. And we're all called to that to that aspiration of the mystical life. It doesn't mean we're all gonna get the stigmata. It doesn't mean we're all gonna have bodily levitations. Those are the extraordinary signs of the mystical life. But the catechism mm -hmm. says, we are all called to the ordinary mystical life. Mm. And that means opening eros to the eternal, to the great mystery of Christ's love for the church. That's why we call it the mystical life. We're opening arrows to the great mystery of Christ's spousal love for mm. the church. Sure. That's amazing. Yeah, my daughter Beth uh, painted this. She, um, she's got a gift to put truths into images. So I asked her to do that. Yeah, that's amazing. So that actually kind of brings to um, bring it more into, for us, the practical sphere, right? Um, so for us, obviously, our vocation is marriage and, and family life. Um, and so you talked about kind of, um, I think you just mentioned, right, the mega mystery, Ephesians 5, right? Yeah, yeah. And how um, St. Paul talks about, you know, it's funny, like Ephesians 5 can seem like sometimes it's like the dirty secret of the church, right? Like somebody, sometimes you're like, we're, we're only going to read the short version so we don't get to the, the wives submit yourselves to your husband's part and, uh, you know, and everybody gets up and leaves. Um, and, and from what I was learning in the course, right, John Paul II talks about that this is a key, if not the key interpretive 
um, um, passage about about the gospel and the scriptures. Um, yes, he calls so, Ephesians he, five. He calls it the compendium and summa, in some way, of the whole message of scripture. It's a summary of everything God wants to tell us about who He is and who we are and why we're here and what our destiny is and how to get there. Sure. And so, um, what, so I've often heard the church say that it is the family that is the, the basic unit of society, not the individual. Um, yes. So in, in reflecting on Ephesians 5, why is that the case? Why is it that the family is the basic unit of culture and not the individual? Yeah. Let's, let's look theologically and then apply it in, in just sociologically, right? Um, the, the key passage in Ephesians 5 is verse 31 to 32. And here, St. Paul links the book of Genesis, which starts the Bible, with the book of Revelation that ends the Bible. The Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman, but it ends with the book, in the book of Revelation with the marriage of Christ and the church. And the whole point of the first marriage, St. Paul tells us in these two verses, is to point us to the ultimate marriage. Hmm. And so Paul says this, for this reason, for what reason? He's about to tell us. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's a quote right out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Then he tells us the reason. It's, it's as if we've been waiting since the, the author of Genesis wrote this, however many of thousands of years ago. It's as if the whole world's been waiting for what's the reason. Hmm. Paul tells us right here. He says, here's the reason. This is a great mystery. And, and you were referencing the Greek, which I love as well. It's a mega mystery. It, it has a great ring to it. Mega mystery, right? Th just pause right there. Our creation as male and female and the call of the two to that intimate union in the marriage bed. This is a mega mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what, how? What, how does that refer to Christ and the church? Christ left his father in heaven. He left the home of his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. Where do we become one flesh with him? In the Eucharist. Oh, in the Eucharist. When the bride, which is, you're right, Lisa, the Eucharist is nothing but the representation of what happened at the cross. Mm -hmm. Right? In the Eucharist, the bridegroom says to the bride, this is my body given up for you. Mm. Right? And the bride receives the bridegroom. Mm. When Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That's like saying the bride cannot conceive unless she's in union with the bridegroom. Mm. It's a nuptial mystery, St. Paul, St. John Paul II tells us. It's, it's a mystery of, of nuptials, and it's drawn right out of what St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. And I, I often tell this story to bring the point home. I never met my father-in-law. He died when my wife was a girl. But I admire him tremendously because of this story. He married my mother-in-law in the mid-60s. It was a Saturday afternoon. They came together in their marriage bed for the first time as husband and wife on their wedding night. 
The next morning, they were at mass for the first time as husband and wife. And coming back from receiving the Lord in the Eucharist, my father-in-law was in tears, coming back to the pew. And his new wife said to him, honey, what is it? And through his tears, he said, for the first time in my life, I understood the meaning of those words. This is my body given up for you. And here we, we have to recognize, and St. Paul tells us right after he tells us the mega mystery in Ephesians 5, in the next chapter of the letter, Ephesians 6, he basically says, you want to live the mega mystery of your sexuality, what I was just telling you about? Get ready for a war. There is a raging battle between good and evil that is focused right here to try to prevent us from recognizing the mystery of our sexuality because the enemy doesn't want it to launch us to the marriage of the lamb. Mm. He doesn't want us to know who we are. So he twists and dis disrupts and disorients this whole mystery of our sexuality so that it no longer aims us at the stars. Mm. Now I want to, now I want to speak sociologically. That's theologically. Let's apply that sociologically at a very basic level. We could say this, if society has a cancer, we have to treat it at the cellular level. Mm. And the fundamental cell of society is the family, right? Society, the very word society, social, it mm. means more than one person. So it cannot possibly be the individual who is the fundamental cell of society. Mm. Society means the, the social reality, which always involves more than one person. The fundamental cell of society is the family. But John Paul II says, we have to go to the nucleus of the cell. Mm. The nucleus of the cell is the union of man and woman. Mm. Without the union of man and woman, there's no next generation. There's no family. There's no society. And when when the, the union of man and woman is engaged in with inverted rocket engines, we end up just using one another and we'll use one another selfishly as long as you bring me pleasure. When things get difficult and you're no longer giving me pleasure, I'll leave you and I'll go find my pleasure elsewhere. When marriage breaks down, the family breaks down. When the family breaks down, the neighborhood breaks down. When the neighborhood breaks down, the community breaks down. When the community breaks down, the city breaks down. When the city breaks down, the state breaks down. When the state breaks down, the nation breaks down. If, there, if there's sickness out here in a, in a nation, in the world, you have to go back to the fundamental cell where the cancer is. Mm-hmm. You have to go into the nucleus of that cell, which is the union of man and woman, and redirect those rocket engines towards self-giving love. Mm-hmm. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Self-giving, self-sacrificial love. When that is the basis of the sexual union, it builds families that live the truth of love and life. Yeah, Those families build neighborhoods that live the truth of love and life. 
Those neighborhoods build communities that do the same. Cities, states, nations, the world get shaped based on whether or not men and women are loving one another in that embrace. John Paul II puts it this way. He says that the balance of human life depends on who man will be for woman and who woman will be for man. The balance of human life, he goes even further and he says, at every point on the globe and at every moment of history, the balance and dignity of human life depend on who man will be for woman and who woman will be for man. Mm. Will we love this way? Husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Or will we love in a selfish, lustful, uh, egotistical, dominating, mm. manipulative way? Mm. That's what determines society. Sure. Yeah, and I think that's why Andy and I both love what we do so much and why theology of the body speaks so much to our hearts, because I know I see it here in the counseling room. I tend to specialize in teenagers. I've worked the last um, 10, 12 years in high schools and working with teens and in private practice. Now I work with a wide variety of people, but I see that. I see so much of like, if we go back on people's timelines, I've been doing a lot of timeline work. We see where a lot of like these like core wounds, these keystone memories that they have tend to be around family and wounding of family. And not that we vilify anybody in that. And I'm really big on that. Like I don't want to vilify anybody in somebody else's past and in their history because that is a dehumanizing of that person as well. But understanding like that is not what God intended. And where are the lies in that? So I know I see that here in the counseling room. And I know Andy's work as being directing a a family life and evangelization at the parish level. He's at a little bit of a higher level. Like we see that. And I think where, and this is where I think Andy came home and was so excited from the Institute is like, sometimes it can feel like we're fighting an uphill battle because like people come, they find healing and then they kind of go back out into that culture again. Um, And it feels like an uphill battle. But then I think where Andy came in was under coming home from the Institute was understanding that like the Lord is inviting us into that work yes, and that he, he is working through it. And we aren't expected to be the ones to fix all of the things just Correct. to be faithful in the moment with the person that's in front of us. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Lisa, would you say I was struck by that vilification, you know, when, when we start looking at our wounds, and this is familiar territory to me, uh, most of my interior life in the last, over the last 30 years has been looking at where does that pain come from? Yeah. And, and you have to go back to your family of origin and start looking at, at painful things. Would you say that the opposite of vilification is forgiveness? Yes. 100%. Yeah. It's understanding that this person is not a villain. If we're talking about it psychologically, it's what we call the drama triangle mm-hmm. where you have, you have to have three players in a drama triangle. You have to have a victim, a villain, and a hero. Um, and typically if you're calling somebody a, a villain in your life, you are the victim of that person. Um, but instead you flip the, the drama triangle. Um, sorry, it's this way. Victims on the bottom. You right. flip the drama triangle up to the empowerment triangle and you understand that you are a creator, like you are trying to find and create solutions in your life. And then that person isn't, isn't a villain, but they're a challenger. 
Like there's something going on with them. That's their own stuff. That's challenging you to understand where are your boundaries? Where do you need to set good, healthy boundaries? Where do you need to allow good things to come in and keep bad things out? And they're challenging you to grow in that way. Um, And that, that allows you to see them as human. Because what I find is like vilification of another person never works because we know in our hearts that that person is also created in the image and likeness of God. You know, I think it was Carl Rogers who said, there isn't anybody you can't love once you've heard their story. Amen. Amen. this is, he's a secular, he's a secular, yep. he's the founder of, of humanistic psychology, um, of person centered. And it's like, yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think when we try to vilify people in our history, that part of us that knows the goodness of the other knows that what we're doing is a lie and that's yes. not going to work. And that's not going to bring healing. Um, but like, where do you find that balance of what they did is not okay and I'm not going to let them do that, but they're not a villain. And I think like that's where that comes in. But theology of the body speaks directly to that and says like, no, it's not that they're evil and it's not okay what they did. Um, and yet where do we find, um, because the other piece of that drama triangle too, is the hero is that we look for heroes in our lives. And like, that's not helpful. Like I can't make Andy my hero. And I think this often happens in like marriage relationships where one person feels wounded and they want the other person to rescue them but that's not appropriate because that's asking andy to be something to me that he cannot be he cannot save me in my spiritual life the only person who can save only one savior it's the lord and i think that is also a piece that plays into it as well when we turn ourselves into that victim we are we are dehumanizing other people either by turning them into villains or trying to turn them into hero gods for ourselves instead of understanding that like the lord is calling me to grow the lord is calling me into relationship with him um and that i can find that healing and that i don't have to dehumanize people or put people up on pedestals and i think you see that a lot in ministry where people put people up on i'm sure it happens to you a lot where people put you up onto this pedestal And it's like, you have all of the answers, but like, you don't have all, you're awesome. And you have lots of answers, but you don't have all of them. God have mercy. And there's, I I would say a big part of my own journey was realizing how many masks I was wearing because I was too afraid to look at the pain underneath. And I thought I had to have this good impression. And when you're in the public eye, like I have been, and people look to you as if you're supposed to have all the answers. You start to think, maybe I am supposed to have all the answers. And then you feel like a fraud because you know you don't have all the answers. And you're just as broken as anybody anybody else is. Uh, but that brings us back to what you were saying earlier, Lisa, about our role is not to go save the world. We can't. We're not the Savior. But we can be witnesses to the work of the Savior in our world, in our mm-hmm. own lives. And to the extent that we are, those seeds of salvation spread and they start growing. Mm. And that's how the world was changed 2,000 years ago. Because 12 people encountered this Mm. saving love and that seed was planted in their heart and they were able to sow seeds elsewhere. That's all we can do. (laughs) all, All we can do is become witnesses to the love we have tasted, experienced in as much as we have tasted and experienced that real love of the Lord in our brokenness. That is the key. Saints are not perfect people, 
They're people who know they are perfectly loved in all their imperfections. That's where the sanctity comes from, not from some self-willed uh, uh, accomplishment. It's just a broken, open realization of my need for his perfect love. Mm. And when we encounter someone who has encountered that kind of love, it can change our lives too. Mm. This is how the gospel gets passed. I, I think of one person in my life in particular, a professor of mine, who was a friend of St. John Paul II. His name was Monsignor Lorenzo Albacete. And, and that man knew he was loved. Mm. He knew he was loved in all of his broken humanity, which was on display for everyone to see. He didn't wear these masks. I thought, I grew up thinking I needed to, to bury my broken humanity to give a good impression so I could be lovable. And I encountered this man when I was 25 years old who was overweight, chain smoking, had a, a kind of nasty comb over. He always had... <laughs> He always had uh, like tomato sauce on his clerics and, and he just was like, here, what you see is what you get. I'm a broken human being and I know I'm loved. Mm. And let me tell you about this love that has changed my life. I'll tell you a quick story that just, the first time he met John Paul II, it was two years before he became Pope. And he was a young priest, Albacete was a young priest and the Cardinal in Washington DC told Albacete that he had to go to the airport to pick up this cardinal from Poland and he was going to drive him around town to all of his meetings for a week. And Albacete goes to meet this prince of the church from Poland and his car is a total mess. Like he's got McDonald's french fries on the floor of the front seat of the car. <laughs> cardinal Wojtyla gets in the car and like has to shoo the french fries away. <laughs> and in their lifelong friendship from that point on, whenever Albacete would go to Rome to see the Pope, the Pope and he would laugh about those french fries in the car <laughs> from 1976. But it just goes to show it's a window into the freedom that that man had that he didn't have to make a good impression. Yeah. He, he knew he was loved in his broken humanity and it was okay. Yeah. His life was a mess, but it was a beautiful mess. Yeah. And that's one of the most, that's one of the best compliments you can give anybody. Your life is a beautiful mess. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, so that gives me the perfect, uh, you know, French fries all over your car and life being a mess gives me a perfect segue to talk about my children. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one of the things, um, you know, you, you talked about if society has a disease, right, treating it at the, at the cellular level and the family is the cell. Um, and one of the one of the just the great pleasures I had at, at the Institute was actually getting to sit and have lunch with your kids one day. Um, and they just seemed, you know, I, I think I met three of them. Um, I, the, Isaac was one of them. The, the other two, the names are escaping. Isaac, right Grace and Beth. Gotcha, Beth. And then your your oh, John Paul was there. Our oldest John Paul was there as well. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. And just you know, they seem to. Um, it was beautiful to see how they have kind of, uh, you know, internalized, you know, a love for the church, a love for God. Um, and I'm just wondering how, um, you know, even in your family life, that that how you kind of you talked about witnessing to people, right? 
how you and your wife have tried to witness to them mm -hmm. so that they can internalize that. I know, um, you know, we we went to a friend's house a couple months ago and they, they pray like a family rosary every night and their kids were sitting perfectly on the couch, like working through the Hail Marys and my kids are like crawling on my head and like throwing trains while it's happening. So I don't think, you know, I could sit them down and give them a 45 minute PowerPoint theology about it, right? So how in your daily interactions do, you know, can you live that out and, and witness to that? I'm, I'm right as you asked me that question, I'm aware of my, my weakness. I'm aware of my own brokenness. I, each of my children's lives is a beautiful mess. And my, my hope and my goal as a dad is to let them know that I love them in that beautiful mess. Um, do I do that perfectly? Absolutely not, because my life is a beautiful mess. And I've, I grew up under the paradigm that you better clean up your mess if you want to be loved. And the struggle, I would call it the struggle in my parenting, not that there aren't other struggles, but this is like one of the overarching struggles in my fatherhood is just letting life be messy. Uh, and and it, even as I say it, I start to get twitchy because... <laughs> Because messes drive me crazy. You know, all my kids will, will be the first to say, I know it drives my dad crazy when we leave messes around the house. And it doesn't drive my wife crazy. And I, I've had to learn. Like, even as I say it, my shoulders are tense. I got to just let my shoulders down. Well, I'm just wondering, like, do you have like a camera and you're just watching our marriage play out? Because that's also <laughs> over here too. Except we both hate messes. So that's an added struggle for us. <laughs> oh, humanity. I'm a student of humanity. I, I love I love human life. I love I'm a student of humanity. So uh, that's how I know this stuff. I know it in me and I know it in others. Uh, and I, I have learned from my wife. I'm put it this way. I'm learning from my wife. <laughs> And need continually to learn from my wife that messes are okay. It's okay. I I keep I tell that Albacetti story about the French fries because of the impact it had on me. Because if I were in charge of picking up a cardinal from Poland, I would have taken my car to a detail a detailer, right? I would have had the whole thing swept inside and out and upside down. And I think we have this idea that if Jesus were coming over for dinner. Mm. we would treat him as the kind of guest that we think we need to clean up everything before he shows up. Mm. Whereas there are, there are close friends or family members. If they're coming over for dinner, we don't feel the need to get the whole house in order. Right. Jesus is that kind of friend. Mm. And, and if, if by the way, we had Jesus come over and we had just swept everything in the closet and locked the closet door and put all the junk in there to, to make it look like everything was fine. And Jesus comes to the door for dinner, you know where he's gonna go first. What, that they need to go take a look at this closet, <laughs> right? We are, we are loved in our mess. Mm. That's the thing we don't believe. Yeah. And that's why we so we struggle so much to believe the gospel, because that's the gospel. Mm -hmm. We are loved in our mess. Mm -hmm. and, and here we confuse so often. We confuse the way of perfection with perfectionism. Mm -hmm. and you'll remember this from the class, Andy, that perfectionism says, OK, I know I'm meant to be here and I know I'm way over here. 
And the perfectionist thinks I won't be loved until I get here. Mm -hmm. And so the perfectionist spends his life striving, striving, striving to try to get there to be loved. But he's getting nowhere. He's getting nowhere. Right. The way of perfection is very different. I know I'm meant to be here. I know I'm over here. But I also know that I'm loved right here. Okay. That's the good news of the gospel. I'm loved right here in my beautiful mess. Yeah. And it's that love that is the fuel for the journey. And I go, I grow step by step closer to what I'm called to be. And I fall on occasion. Yep. But I'm not downhearted because I know that does not change God's love for me. Yeah. That love for me allows me to get back up and continue the journey. Yeah. That's how I try to parent. Uh, I try to parent that way. Uh, do I succeed? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, that just makes me think it's, it's a little aside from parenting, but it makes me think of in counseling, we talk about that as the perfectionism as running to health. Like client will come in, tell me like maybe one or two of their problems, but then usually it's like three or four sessions after they figured out that they can trust me and we're not really getting anywhere and we're spinning our wheels that they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to drop this bomb on you. Oh, I didn't tell you about this. And it's like the deeper thing. Um, and it is, it's like, it's, I can't walk with you through your mess if you don't show me what your mess yes. is. Yes. But people are scared to show me what their mess is because they're scared. I'm like, Ooh, this is too much for me. Yes. I don't want to walk with you anymore. I'm going to, yeah. and that's why like, it's a huge ethical concern. Like you can't like tell a client, Oh, I can't meet with you anymore. That's too much. Like it's a, called abandonment of client. Like, because yeah. it is, it's a deep psychological fear and wound yes. that to abandon somebody when they've shown you this. Now there, there is maybe moments where I'm like, uh, I'm not qualified to help you with that. You know, there's those kinds of things, but even even on a like legal level, like we're not allowed to do that because of how damaging it is to yes. walk away from somebody when they've shown you something that's very vulnerable and hard for them. But that's what therapy is. It's say, seeing somebody and walking with them through their mess to healing. But you can't run to healing right away. It's a journey that you have to go together to get yes. to. And that goes, that goes right back to Genesis. Again, if you're looking for the, the theological side of that psychological truth, it's right there in the book of Genesis when Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Um, We've all been hiding behind masks and fig leaves because we're afraid that if we take the mask off, we'll be abandoned. We won't be loved. We won't be... Mm -hmm honored. We won't be seen. Uh, people will be afraid of their own mess and they'll leave, or they'll be afraid so much of my mess, they'll leave. And I, I, I would say the, the whole journey of the Christian life um, is a journey of reversing that fear mm -hmm. so that we get to the point where we can say, I was at peace because I knew he loved me, so I exposed myself. Mm -hmm. that's the opposite of I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself the, at least the purgative stage of the journey of, of Christian of the Christian life is the reversal of that fear. Mm. Perfect love casts out fear. And what an, what an amazing opportunity you have Lisa and you also Andy in the work yeah. that you do where, and the work that I do where you see people's broken humanity 
and you are able to look at them with with a gaze of love. Yeah. And you can say to them with your eyes, I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Your brokenness does not scare me. Your brokenness does not make me want to turn away from you and leave. Yeah. And the only way people like us who have the privilege of being in those places with other people, the only way we can do that is if we first know it ourselves, that we've been loved in that place in our own lives, because you can't give what you don't have. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Well, I know we're, we're up on time and I want to be respectful of your time. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I know like I've gotten a lot from it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just, it's, um, I want to try to just share this with as many people as possible, because I think that, you know, again, it's not just the people in the world that have, um, you know, turned their, their, their minds away or said, said, you know, the church has nothing to offer, but even people in the church that, that need to hear Mm -hmm. this message that John Paul has, has uh, given us this great gift he's given us. So um, just kind of sets my heart on fire. Yeah. Andy, I, I'm so glad I got to have you in that course for a week. And uh, I, I just pray that whatever seeds were planted continue to grow in your marriage and your ministry and in being a, a husband and father. Uh, it's one of the greatest joys in my life is to see students of mine really open their hearts to receive this good news because it is it is nothing short of, of life changing. And I would just to all those who are listening to this podcast, I would invite you to continue your journey, learning more about the theology of the body. You can, mm-hmm. it's easy enough, just go to theologyofthebody.com and learn about the Theology of the Body Institute, the courses we offer. We have online courses as well as in-person courses. Uh, my wife and I do a podcast, a Q&A podcast, and we have over a hundred episodes. You can go wherever you listen to podcasts and just type in, ask Christopher West. And you'll, you'll find that podcast. That's a great way to, to learn more. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we are definitely keeping you in our prayers because of all the amazing work that you're doing. And um, again, just being so grateful for what you've done in our lives um, and what we know you've done in so many other people's lives thank as well. You, Lisa. May, may our brokenness, this is always my prayer as a teacher. May our brokenness, may my brokenness become a channel of the Lord's wholeness. Mm. May, may our poverty become a channel of the Lord's riches. Mm. Uh, and may, may our, even our sinfulness become a channel of God's holiness. If we open our sinfulness to the Lord, that becomes a riverbed through which his holiness passes. Because it's never our holiness, Mm-mm. right? It's, it's participating in his holiness. May our weakness become a channel of his strength, our brokenness a channel of his wholeness, our poverty a channel of his riches. That, that's, that's ministry. Otherwise, we're patting ourselves on the back for the good yes. job that, that we're doing. It's yes. the work of the Lord. That's all, there, that's all it is. It's the work of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much. You're so welcome.